Okay, good morning. Hope you can all hear me well. Uh, we're going to continue this morning studying the life of Gideon. And just one note on, I was turned on probably about a year or two ago to studying different characters of the Bible. And sometimes it can be a refreshing thing in our, in our devotional life. If uh, you're kind of needing to switch things up, you can pick a few different characters from the Bible and see how is it that God interacted with them, pick men, pick women, pick young, pick old. Um, it's kind of fun to see that and then think about how does that apply even to your own life and the lessons that they're learning and how God is working in their lives. So um, I'd encourage you to do that if, um, and we're going to be doing that this month, uh, next week looking at Hannah in particular, and then the following week looking at Mary. Um, so I'd like to just uh, open up in prayer, and then and then we'll do a little review on last week's message and kind of the thrust of that, and then go into today and see what it is that happened in Gideon's life that we can learn from and glean from in our own lives. Lord, we thank you for the word. I thank you so much for the time here with other believers uh, to worship um, in songs for me that are new and thinking of how good you are. And as we contemplate Gideon's life today, may you help us in our own walks to be humble, to recognize our own points of failure and weakness and where we need to grow, and also just continuing to grow that trust in us that's so needed in the Christian walk, not just to become a believer, but on, on a regular, daily, weekly basis, especially in the times that we're living in today. Lord, help us to be men and women full of faith in you, um, the sometimes illogical God that you are, Lord, but you have all the answers even when we cannot fully understand it. Help us to have that kind of childlike faith that um, we see is necessary in Gideon's life today. Amen. So last week we looked at Gideon and we saw that at the time, uh, Israel was in a difficult moment. They were having seven years of being oppressed by another people, the Midianites. They were having trouble collecting food. Uh, they were everywhere they were going. They were just living under constant pressure and torture, essentially, from these people. They had, to, they had houses in caves because they needed, to, um, they needed safety and security. And at that moment... God hears the cry of the Israelites and sends a prophet and then comes to Gideon and starts using interesting language that Gideon, you will be the one to save Israel. You are a mighty warrior. And we saw that Gideon has no belief in God, that the God that or he has a belief in God, but the God that Israel was to Egypt, he says, who are you that same God? Are you the same God that I've heard about in the past? Are you true to your word? And he wondered those things, and God had to work on Gideon before he would even start to use him. There was idol worship going on in Gideon's house, and God told Gideon, you must destroy the idol in your own father's house, the Baal and the Asherah pole. And Gideon said, okay, I'll do that, but when did he do it? In the middle of the day? No, he did it at night, so no one could see him. It was a convenient obedience that he had. And then after that, Gideon, okay, well, he did such a mighty thing to destroy these idols, and there was a lot of people in an uproar over that, and they said, okay, well, now Gideon must die as a result of this, this um, destruction of these idols. 
And Gideon's own father, Joash, came in to save his life and said, well, let Baal contend with him. And literally, Gideon's name was changed to Jerubbaal at that point. And so we think, okay, maybe now Gideon's ready. He's kind of been used by God to do some dramatic things. Maybe his faith is there. And we come to kind of an iconic story that we've seen in the scriptures, the fleece story. And even in modern day English, we kind of have an idiom, right? We want to lay, let's lay a fleece before the Lord. And some of us can think, oh, that's kind of an interesting, cute little way. But actually, we're going to learn that that's actually Gideon was testing God. And that was not something that he that is a, a prideful moment in Gideon's life, but was actually something that was wrong of him to do and showed a lack of faith. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open to Judges 6, 33. We'll start there. I'm sorry, I don't know the page number on the Pew Bible. Uh, my Bible is 243, but I don't think you have the same Bible as me necessarily. Um, well, let's start in 633. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in a valley of Jezreel. The spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout uh, several Israelite uh, towns there in Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and said, come, and he called them to arms. So we get an idea they're, they're ready to fight. And remember, last week I mentioned that the book of Judges, these judges are not people that are elected by, a, by people. It's not a democracy that votes, okay, we want uh, Gideon or David. No, well, God was the one who essentially gave this person this spiritual authority, and people recognized that leadership and would follow them. And Gideon now has that authority, and that's why Gideon is able to send these messengers out, and people come to join him. We see that 32,000 people came at this point, so not a small number. A lot of people recognize this authority that Gideon have, had. And we think, okay, maybe it's showtime. Verse 34 says, says that the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon. And so we would assume that, okay, now this Spirit-empowered person is ready to fully obey God, but even for those of us who've been saved and have the Spirit within us, we know that we also have to choose to obey the Lord. It's not just guaranteed that once we're saved, we are people who always walk in Him, and the same is happening here with Gideon. We see his self-doubts come out yet again, even though 32,000 people are with him, he has a test for God. And in verse 36, it says, Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you promised, look, I'll place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I'll know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose up the next day early. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, an entire bowlful of water. So God passed Gideon's test. This was, it would have been miraculous. I'm sure if we laid out a fleece out there in that field tomorrow morning and we said, God, you know, please just show me that you're real today. Uh, just make sure that piece of cloth is wet and everything else around it is dry. And then that happens. We would, what would the logical response would be that we would then say, okay, God is real and I will follow what you say. But Gideon, what does Gideon say in verse 39? 
Gideon says to God, God, please don't be angry with me. Let me just ask you one more thing. And allow me one more test with this fleece. This time, basically do the opposite. Make the fleece dry and all the ground wet, covered with dew. And that night, what happens? It says God did so. God did as Gideon asked. Once the f- only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. Now, we can kind of read that story and think, oh, that's kind of a cute little story that Gideon did and God worked this miracle out. But what's really going on here? In Deuteronomy 6:16, God said, "Do not put the Lord to your te- do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. And remember when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness when he was fasting for 40 days, Jesus used this very scripture to say, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, in any test, what's the purpose of a test is to basically determine if something like passes, is qualified to pass, or basically to fail. We want to determine some, someone's character or what they know based on how they test. So I think God himself is, why, why, why do you think God would allow this testing to go on if it was contradictory to what he said? I think God is just purely showing his grace here to Gideon, allowing him to see. He knows Gideon's heart, his weakness, his frailness, and he knows that okay, Gideon might need this to trust in me more. God could have or maybe even should have punished Gideon at this point, but he doesn't. He's willing to let Gideon go along. And he remembers, I think, his covenant with Israel, his love towards them. He doesn't get angry. And we see this patience just exuding throughout God through this passage. And I want to ask you, like, if you were the Lord, at this point, you've worked with Gideon already a bit. What do you, what, how would you have responded? Would you have gotten angry with Gideon? I think I would have. I think at this point I would have been like, Gideon, I don't think you're the person for this job. It's time for me to so- find someone else. Either Gideon should be punished, uh, moved on, or um, just, just totally uh, set aside for, for this job. But God obviously passes the test, and we're going to see what does Gideon continue to do. But in your own life, before we go there, I would ask you, I want to ask you a question. How many times do you need from the Lord 100% affirmation before you do something? How many times do you feel that you need to know the end result before you go and launch into that obedience. Probably more often than you want to admit. I know that's the same for me. But we see in Scripture, actually, that's not the kind of faith that God wants. In Genesis 12, I love this passage when God said to Abram in Genesis 12:1, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. This wasn't a small step of obedience God was calling Abraham to. He told him to leave his people, his land, and even his family to obey God. Or think about when Jesus was talking with the disciples in Mark 8. He said to the, to the disciples that the Son of Man would suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and that he would be killed and raise, rise, rise three days later. And Peter kind of takes Jesus aside 
thinking he knows better than him and says, Jesus, that's not, don't let that happen. That's not going to happen. Don't, your kingdom's going to be established here. And what was Jesus's response to Peter at the time? He said, Satan, you know, step aside. At any time that we or any of us um, try to go against God's will, we are essentially doing what the enemy wants, right? We are not following what the Lord himself knows is best for us, but we're choosing to usurp God's power. And Jesus tells Peter, essentially, that is satanic. That's, that's of the other world to do that. God, in his ways, oftentimes, I feel, is not the most clearest, is not the most logical or what we think is smartest to, to follow. But his ways are best. It's almost like if you have a child that wants something, right? We, you, most of you know what it's like to have little kids in the house or could assume and a little five-year-old might want a candy bar and say, Mom, Dad, can I? I'm hungry. I'm so hungry. I need that candy bar. And the mom or dad, if they have any nutritional sense, will say, uh, son or daughter, no, that's not for you to have. And the kid might say, well, why not? It's food. It tastes good. And they don't understand all the nu- nutritional reasons why they shouldn't have that. And if a parent tried to say, well, son or daughter, um, you know, that candy bar has 32 grams of sugar in it. And if you have too much sugar, then what will happen to your body is it will turn into this, this, and this. And then you might have trouble later on down the road, and you'll have a stomach ache, and the kid might just say, well, uh, I'm still hungry. Like, right? These are almost that God is so far beyond us that if he even tried to explain some of the reasons for things happening or not happening, it would be just like useless. Like we wouldn't understand it. And so God is essentially calling here Gideon to say, trust in me regardless of whether or not you get it or don't get it. And so Gideon, in this fleece story, we see that Gideon wants to put God to the test, but he, even though he didn't know the outcome of what was going to be, God is calling him to a deep level of trust here. And so in verse chapter 7, it's time to fight. But the men are there, these 32,000 men, they're all in this, this valley called Jezreel. And we'll learn later on how they were positioning themselves. But in, in verse uh, 2, we see that God is saying, look, Gideon, you have too many men. You have 32,000. And by the way, the Midianites had 135,000 men. So Israel was at that point outnumbered 5 to 1. And five to one sounds pretty bad to start with. And God is saying, look in verse two, you have too many men. I can't deliver Midian into your hands or Israel will boast against me and say that my strength has saved me. So Gideon must have thought, God, what are you talking about? We are already outnumbered five to one and you want us to have less people. And what's the reason why God says that? Why God says you need to reduce that number because if you don't and you are victorious, Israel will boast against me. And the tendency was for them to think that they were the reasons for this victory, and God wants to remove that, that perceived strength. And so God does this in two different ways. The first way is kind of easy. God tells Gideon, just tell everyone who's afraid. If you're afraid, go. And so Gideon does that. 22,000 men leave. Who knows why they were there? Maybe peer pressure. 
uh, machismo thought, hey, let's go out and fight, but really deep down they were afraid. But anyways, they get their free ticket home. They're afraid. 22,000 people go. Now 10,000 are left. So if you're at all into math, right, what are their odds now? 10,000 to 135,000. What, 13 to 1 odds or 1 to 13 odds, depending how you put it? But that would still make Israel boast. And so God says, okay, let's cut the numbers down more. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to take them down to the water, and they're going to take a drink. And depending on the way that the people drink is the way that I'll determine who will be allowed to stay. If anyone knelt down, then they would be sent home. Perhaps they would still, even in kneeling, be enough of a target to be seen, and so they would be a, um, a liability. And so God says, if they kneel down to drink, send them home. The other people who could stay are the people who basically were willing to lose their dignity, to get down maybe on all fours or on their stomach maybe, and just kind of grab hand in their wa- grab the water with their hand and, and lap it like a dog. And we all know if you drink, none of us drinks water like that. Why? Because it's so time-consuming, right? If you, if if we took water in our hand and you know did this, it would take us forever, right? Thank God for cups; we can quickly drink. But these men were willing to do that, and there were few in number, three hundred people. And I I don't want to speculate, but I, there may be just two reasons why God chose these particular men. Um, The first could be that God knew it was just going to be a smaller amount of people. But I think the second could have been that these men were willing to to lose their dignity, self-respect for the Lord's sake. They were willing to be able to say, look, I don't really care what other people think of me. I see that God wants us to to, to fight and defeat the Midianites, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to do that. And so, nonetheless, whatever the exact reason was, Scripture doesn't say, but God was whittling down Gideon's army, and now there was just 300 people who did that. And so, what happens? God says in verse 7, With the 300 men that lapped the water, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let the others go home. So, Gideon sent the rest of the men, these Israelites, home, but he kept the 300, and he took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. So God made his choice. 9,700 people out of that 10,000 would be sent home. So again, if you're back to math, the probability or the odds now, or the um, you're outnumbered, I should say, are 450 to 1. That would be like almost if this entire church maybe were really, really packed with people like side by side, and I was the only one in this room. I think if I saw you guys were going to attack me with swords and, and arm, uh, weapons, I don't think I'd start and say, come on, let's go. I would probably want to run out the back door or duck out the baptismal or something and get out of the way. But God is that not that kind of God, and God knew that even though these were the kind of out, they were outnumbered this way, that actually they were still going to defeat them. And I give Gideon credit here. He does obey God. He doesn't put up a storm, a fight. You know, he actually says, okay, go. The rest of you men, 9,700 of you, go home. And I think, could you imagine what the, the chatter was at that point in the group? The 300 that stayed, and now you've seen more than 31,000 people go. 
and you're kind of wondering, how in the world are we going to do anything against 135,000 people? You'd be probably terrified in a way. Well, actually, these guys weren't. They weren't afraid. But you must have had pretty strong faith in the Lord that some, he was going to deliver you. And so we see one more time that Gideon needs more assurance in the following verses. God comes to Gideon at night, and in verse 9, it says, The camp of the Midian lay below him in the valley, and during that night the Lord said to Gideon, Get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura, and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Purah, his servant, went to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples were settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camp could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. And so you have this valley here, like I said earlier, the valley of Jezreel. And inside this valley... It's nighttime now, and, and we see that there's people gathered there, 135,000. Uh, most likely, it's, it's night, it is nighttime at this, at this moment, and so there would have probably been some fires burning of wood and some torches there. Some guards were on watch. And notice what God says to Gideon, that two things here, that if you go now, you'll defeat them. But two, in verse 10, if you are afraid to attack... Go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. So it's almost that God is giving Gideon another, another. He, he knows Gideon's heart. He knows Gideon's probably got this nagging doubt in his mind and says, I'll do another thing to show you and you'll be encouraged by what you'll hear. So God knows the chatter in the camp. He knows what people are thinking about. In verse 13 Gideon, basically we see Gideon agrees to go down. He arrived just as a man was telling a friend about a dream. And his friend said, I had a dream. Uh, a round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into our camp, and it struck the tent with such force that the, te that the tent overturned and collapsed. And the friend said, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelites. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. And when Gideon heard this dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Could you? How would you feel if you walked into that? You walk in, you're walking into a situation where soldiers are talking and you hear that you are going to now be the person to deliver. And that did these people even know you? I'm not sure if anyone knew who Gideon was specifically in the Midianite camp. But we see that this dream had some sort of significance. And in the Middle East today, even we hear all throughout, even particularly the, the Muslim world, which is where we are working that we see that dreams have a special significance in people's lives there, that they're very deeply used by God for people to um, almost interpret their uh, reality based upon them. And obviously in Scripture, too, we see dreams are commonly used to guide people to do things. Just even in the story of Jesus, 
his birth, the first two chapters in Matthew, we see, I think, three or four different times God used dreams and visions to move people. But, <coughs> excuse me, in this vision or dream, there's a barley loaf comes into the tent, and so the assumption is that Gideon is that barley loaf. He will destroy and completely collapse the Midianites. God obviously was working in these soldiers' lives enough to understand that. And do you, do you really get the irony here that God has done so many things to prove himself to Gideon. And what's the final thing that Gideon believes? A dream from the enemy, the enemy's mouth, essentially. God himself had done uh, miraculous things in Gideon's life. He had consumed the offering that Gideon gave to him. He had protected him when he defeated the idols. He had uh, worked in the, the fleece story we learned about. And now Gideon, after all that, all that, and he, his final belief is coming from the mouths of an enemy soldier. And we need to kind of see that irony, right, even in our own lives to ask ourselves, like, are we willing to trust in the Lord and working through Scripture to understand what he wants for us to do? Or are we searching for, like, one last little confirmation from someone's mouth that may or may not even be a believer, but instead we have the, the living word of God to guide us here? But God knew that about Gideon and shows his patience even in that, that Gideon needed that final assurance. And so, thankfully, Gideon finally gets on board. He worships the Lord in this passage. It says he bows down before him. And I see that kind of as this symbolic last giving up of his rights and saying, God, you know what's best. And thank you that you have now given us into the hands of the Midianites I'm ready. Let's go. And so the battle starts. And I'm just going to highlight what this battle looked like because it's a bit long if you read the whole section. But there's this valley of Jezreel, and the Israelites would have been in on the north side, the south side, and the west side. And there's a hill on the east. And there's 100 men on each, the north, south, and west. And they have torches. They have some pottery, it sounds like, and trumpets. And what was to their advantage was the men down below, these 135,000 men were sleeping, and so it's dark out. Um, there was a few night watches in ancient Israel, and they would have been 6 to 10 p.m., 10 to 2, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., and then 2 to 6 a.m. So in the, the second night watch, the beginning around 10 p.m., the guards were switching. It was the most vulnerable time for them to be able to attack, and so we can presume that there's people sleeping down below. They're not chattering, you know, having s'mores on campfires. They're out for the night. And so all this noise starts to go on. And if you're sleeping and you're waking up, you're seeing all this noise. You're seeing torches trying to figure out how many people are coming against us right now. Is it five? Is it a hundred? Is it five thousand? A hundred thousand? They don't know, and this was a part of God's strategic plan to defeat them. In verse 22, we see that the Midianites started to scatter, and that God says, it says that the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to just turn on each other. And so God was like orchestrating this confusion, which was essentially killing the Midianites because they didn't know who was who, where's the Israelite, where's the Midianite. And so it's chaos, and Gideon is seeing this with his own two eyes, maybe thinking, okay, it looks like God is going to give us this victory. 
And so the Midianites begin fleeing out of there, and Gideon summons some other Israelite soldiers who weren't a part of the 300, and they help them. They capture and kill some Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb, and their heads are brought to Gideon as proof that these men are dead. And the, Ephraim, the Ephraimites, an Israelite tribe, kind of bring a complaint to Gideon. Hey, why didn't you use us and the original 300 men to, to fight these people? And Gideon uses some kind of diplomatic tact at that point to say, hey, look, even on your best day, even on my best day, I'm nothing compared to you. And so it, the argument is pacified. And Gideon seems at this point to, have, to be doing well, to following what God has asked him to do. But in chapter 8, starting in verse 4, we see basically the, the downfall of Gideon. And we see a, a, revenge, a vengeful man, a person who starts to be, become extremely bloodthirsty and cocky and arrogant. So we, before that, we saw Gideon was this kind of timid man who doesn't really display much faith in the Lord. And then when success comes his way, he actually goes the, the wrong way with that and becomes prideful. And we see this in two examples, particularly with the towns, two different towns in chapter 8, verses 6 through 8. And Succoth is one town and Peniel. And these people do not offer him the food that he's hoping they would offer him. And he issues threats to them to kill them, to torture them, tear down their tower in Peniel. And he goes out and he captures the kings of Midian, Zeba and Zamuna. And he brings these kings back to the town of Succoth and shows them the captured kings, basically proving, I am powerful. You, you think you might have anything that you could do against me, but I have so much power. Look at this, what we have accomplished. And Gideon, it says in verse 16, he punishes the leaders of Succoth with thorns and briars. I don't know exactly what that kind of punishment would have looked like, but Gideon certainly seems to be completely overstepping his bounds and getting vengeance on people. And then he turns to the town of Peniel and this tower that's there, and he tears it down. He kills the men that are in that town. And so we see this. um, And one final uh, way we see Gideon's bloodthirstiness come out is that he's with his son, Jether, and the kings of Midian, uh, Zeba and Zamuna, and he tells his son, okay, finish these guys off. And that would have brought a lot of honor to Jether to do that, but Jether was a young man still, um, probably not able to do such a job, as well as fearful of that. And the other kings taunt him, and Gideon does the the final deed and kills these people and slaughters them. Most commentators look at this section as the unraveling of Gideon, that instead of being thankful to the Lord, that he starts to turn and become prideful and arrogant and overstep his leadership bounds. And we really tell, even from Scripture, that the kind of people we become in the end is what's most important. And so we'll see just at the final end in Gideon's life in 8.22, we'll see what happens to Gideon and see if he is worth following. So the Israelites said to Gideon, Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you saved us from the hand of Midian. Notice the absence of God's praise here in their mouth. 
Verse 23, but Gideon said, I will not rule over them or you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So he answers well. He acknowledges God's sovereign lordship over them. So his theology seems good, but his actions really hadn't backed that good theology. And that's a warning, I think, for all of us today as well, that we oftentimes can have good theological answers, but really the test uh, is for, for us is based on our character, our actions. Do we follow the truth? Do we live it out? And we see that Gideon here is failing that. How do we know that? We see in verse 24, he said, Gideon said, look, I have one request that each of you would give me an earring from your share of the plunder. And they answered, okay, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each of them threw an earring uh, from their plunder onto it. The weight of those rings that he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, which was about 45 pounds worth of gold. That's a lot of gold worth a lot of money, in today's dollars at least. Not counting the ornaments and the pendants and purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camel's neck. So basically there was more than just these earrings. And Gideon made this gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. And all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. You know, this story reminds me, and probably you would remind you also of the story when Aaron, uh, Moses' brother, was left with the Israelites. God was meeting at... Uh, Moses was meeting with God himself on the mountain and the Israelites were getting discouraged and they were getting bored and wanted to worship something. So they told Aaron, give us gold and we'll make it into an idol so we can worship it. And they do. And this is a very similar idea here. But the irony is that Gideon, a few chapters before in chapter six, had destroyed the idols in his father's household and now we're seeing that he is succumbing to his father's sin of idol worship. This was no small amount. It would have been a, a significant ephod that was made out of 45 pounds of gold. And it was placed in Gideon's hometown. And it says that all of Israel prostituted themselves to worship it. And we see that Israel just continues that path of sin. God was still nonetheless gracious to Israel and gave them 40 years of peace. It's interesting. God didn't have to do that. He could have easily punished them for that, uh, removed Gideon immediately, but God continued to bless Israel even though they were full of sin and worshiping idols. Uh, we're not going to look at Judges 9, but if you would like to, you can read that in your own personal devotions and see that Gideon had one more son that would, uh, well, he had many sons, one of which would kill the rest of them and basically uh, prove that Gideon's legacy was not one to follow. I want to just sum up the study of Gideon in two ways. I want to look at Gideon's failure and then look at God and his character that we see from this story. So the the things about Gideon that I notice from this these chapters, Judges 6 to 8, is that Gideon had really weak faith. We see this. This is what Gideon is kind of most often known for, that he forgot 
God's powerful um, ability to help Israel today, that his trust in God was, was fairly weak throughout the entire process of God working with him. Gideon also had lots of insecurities. Several times in the story we see that he was afraid of what others would think of him. He didn't want to obey God in destroying the idols in the daytime. He wanted to do it at night. And then even at the end of the chapter, we see that Gideon didn't stand up for the truth, but he was afraid of what others might have thought. His success really got to him in a bad way. And when Gideon finally trusted that God could use him, that instead he actually ended up killing more people than were necessary. And violence became kind of the, the mantra that he lived by at the end. He wanted praise from men and women rather than God. Success basically um, destroyed him in the end. He never, he didn't in the end stand for truth. Instead of leading Israel into worshiping the Lord, what did Gideon do? He led Israel back into idol worship. He wasn't a good father. And the example that um, I talked about with his oldest son, Jether, that he could have used an example to, um, to not be extremely cruel and unkind to these kings at the end, but instead he slaughters them in front of his son. And I think probably even there was a bit of uh, Jether feeling let, that he let his dad down because he didn't kill these kings. And Gideon did not stand for truth. He led Israel into sin. One commentator basically sums up Gideon as a flawed judge, a flawed leader of Israel who led Israel in a downward slope. And if you read the book of Judges, you see that, again, nothing ever gets better in Israel's history. Rather, Israel continues to go down the path of greater sin and greater um, foolishness. But what does this story tell about the Lord and God is what I want to kind of hone in on here. The first is that we see in this story that God observes everything and he hears the cry of the oppressed. That in the beginning of the story, Israel's being totally mistreated by Midianites and God hears their cry. For seven years, they were exhausted by these Midianites and God comes, he sends a prophet. And then he uses a flawed person like Gideon to give defeat of the, uh, over the Midianites and bring peace in the land for 40 years. God didn't have to do that, but he chose to be kind to those who are in pain. The second point is that God is patient with people. Obviously, with Gideon, he was so patient and so kind. He waited even under a tree. Remember in last week's message, he waited under a tree just so Gideon could bring him a meal that he never ate. He protected Gideon when a violent mob was after him because he destroyed the idols. And he was patient to show Gideon the miracles in the fleece story, to make the fleece wet, the ground dry, to make, and then vice versa. And God was patient with Gideon throughout this. Kind of, you see this kind of uh, sage-like teaching of Gideon throughout the story, and that God didn't destroy Gideon, even though he could and should have. The other thing is that God does illogical things at times. Um, When we think about the army size that Israel had compared to the Midianites, first Israel was outnumbered 5 to 1, and then 10 to 1, and then 450 to 1. It didn't make any sense that an army of 300 people 
could defeat an army of 135,000 people. God, though, um, is able to do the impossible, and we need to continue to trust in him, even though sometimes we, it, it seems really foolish what God is doing. He knows better than us. And that last point is that God works with flawed people like you and I and empowers them to do amazing things for his namesake. He wants to show us that even though we are limited in resources and knowledge and could be money, could be giftedness, like he can over and in abundance use us to work through us. I think Paul says it best that we have this treasure in jars of clay, kind of these things that these jars that are that are temporal, that get chipped, that uh, are not the best. But he has this. We have a treasure in that to show that his all surpassing power is from the Lord and not from us. And so I hope you were encouraged by the story of Gideon, not so much for who Gideon himself was, but what God was able to do in and through this flawed person who finally trusted him and then even got so cocky that he, he uh, led Israel astray. And if we can be people who trust, get, and trust God uh, from the beginning, how much better would it be for us and for those of us around us? I just want to pause with maybe just a few ways that God might use this passage to touch your life. First is, if you're not a believer, I hope that you would see that God is good and kind and loving and wants to use us, not as like little pieces or machines, but wants to work with us to bring him more glory. And that's so seen in the, the gospel that God loves us, gave Jesus for us. And if you're not a believer, I hope that you would trust in him today, that you'd repent and ask forgiveness of sins to get to truly have the spirit live within you and know what it means to walk with him. If you are a believer, and I assume most of you are in here, that you'd see this story and you'd say, man, I need to trust in Gideon and God from the start when he's asking me to, not when he fully has made it 100% clear, which really does he ever before we get going on a path, but that we would trust in him for what he's asking us to do. And that we'd listen to him, we'd read through his word, we'd pay attention to what the Holy Spirit is leading us to do in our lives. And so I just want to pause and, and just take a moment to just ask the Lord to search your heart. What is he wanting you to trust him in today for? And then I'll close us in, in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are trustworthy. And the verse that comes to mind right now is in Job, at the end of Job, when um, Job kind of comes on his face before you and he says that I had heard about you in the past 
but now my eyes have seen, Lord. I think of the times in life when we might grow up hearing about you and the goodness of you, but it's really in life's trials and temptations and hardships that we see your beauty and see that you are worth following, you are worth trusting in with our whole lives. And Father, grow that trust in each one of us today. We all have areas where we need to grow in trusting you to bring us through something and to have faith in you, Lord. Help that faith to grow, that we would love you with our whole hearts and fully give ourselves to you. Amen.